Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert Rand, and today uh, I'm joined by the CTO of the Drupal Association. Uh, we're going to be talking all about, you know, at 20 years old, you know, how Drupal is, is <laughs> as, as I like to say, still turning heads. And, uh, you know, I, I think that as a community, Drupal has got some really amazing things going on. Um, and uh, so you're going to be hearing uh, a lot about the, uh, the trials and tribulations and the future of uh, content management systems as, uh, as seen by the open source community that is Drupal. So with no further ado, Tim, would you do the honor of introducing yourself? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me, Robert. And thanks for, to JetRails for inviting me to be here. Um, yeah, so I've been in the Drupal community for quite a while, even before I was working directly for the Drupal Association, um, going on 14 years now, actually. Um, and I first started my work with Drupal uh, around version 4.7 to give a, an idea of how long ago that was. Um, and um, I used it in the way that many people involved in early open source use these things. Um, uh, I was a student. I was making freelance sites and using that to help kind of pay my way through school. Um, after I got through that uh, I, and kind of started my career, I moved away from the open source world, field for a while and worked in um, some new media startup organizations, some uh, healthcare, uh, small business and HIPAA platform kind of things. And then eventually, about six years ago, I had the opportunity to return to the Drupal Association and return to Drupal in general. So um, uh, it's been great to be here, I think, working in open source. Um, as uh, many of you out there know, if you have a development event, is uh, really fulfilling. It's great to work in a community-driven project. Um, and to see the kinds of innovations that come out of that open source work ethos. So again, thrilled to be here and, and uh, happy to have this conversation today. Well, very cool. And, and we're excited to, or I, I'm excited to have you here, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I typically like to ask tech companies how they got their names. There's often a backstory there. You know, Tim, I know you got involved with Drupal, not necessarily from day one. And uh, I, I know some of the history of of the creation of the platform itself, but do you happen to know how it came to the funky name that it's got? <laughs> yeah, so Drupal is definitely an odd sort of name. Um, uh, and um, the story is um, maybe not too unfamiliar for software projects. Um, so Drupal as a software project was founded by Dries Beitart, who's still involved, still in the Drupal Association chair, still the project lead. Um, and he was a student in Antwerp at the time. He's from Belgium. Um, he speaks many languages. Um, but in particular, um, when he first created the, the very first version of Drupal, he was trying to decide what to call it, right? And what came to mind for him um, was that um, he was creating a community kind of uh, platform. And so he was going to call it Village, except he was going to use the Dutch name for Village, which is Dorp. And then when he went to register his domain name, he um, misspelled it and spelled it drop, which happens to be uh, at least a word in English as it turns out. So he decided to run with that for a little while for the drop community. And then um, I guess just, uh, it's like putting something through Google Translate backwards and forwards a few times. He decided, well, he wanted to have that Dutch connection again. He wanted to um, you know, make it a trademarkable thing for the project to hold. So he said, okay, well, what's the Dutch word for uh, drop, and that's Drupal. So um, he ultimately chose to go with that, named it for the project, and um, we've been answering questions about what's that funny word for 20 years since. So That's fantastic. I really yeah, I have no idea if, uh, if I've heard a better answer to that question. Where did you come up with that name? Uh, <laughs> yep. And I, I don't think I've ever heard that before in all the years that I, I've, you know, worked around the, the Drupal community and um, been involved in, in Drupal projects. That's pretty awesome. So, and it's funny that there's Dropbox, there's Box, and here there's Drop, um, but it didn't yeah. stay that. It <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Village also seems like, oh, that's a cool kind of social networky kind of thing. And 20 years ago, that was pretty 
pretty foresighted. And now, like, if we're being a little highfalutin about it, we try and think of it as like, okay, these drops become, you know, it's, it's in our logo design and it's what we do from a community framework, right? So we have these little drops of individual contributions from communities that come together for this, this greater whole and this like evolving uh, non-static flowing project that is Drupal. So that's the fancy, fancy answer. Um, that makes a so. lot of sense. And my friends at DigitalOcean wouldn't mind, you know, drop and droplet and things like that coming up a lot. So fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I think that there, that visually that there's something appealing to that, uh, to that imagery within the industry that, you know, things that you can build upon in, in that way. Yeah. And, uh, so 20 years, um, <laughs> obviously, yeah. e even the name has changed a little bit uh, through that process. What do you think, you know, if, if we want to start off with uh, the macro look at things, has propelled Drupal um, in into being the CMS that it is today in terms of its, uh, you know, it its seat at the forefront for mid-market and enterprise organizations um, that need a strong content management system to, you know, to be the, uh, you know, the glue that keeps together their website that really powers them to maintain and grow uh, their yeah. online presence. I mean, it's a really great question, and it's uh, it's interesting, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit academic on you just because open source is, you know, in addition to where I work, it's something of a hobby for me. And working in Drupal is a great example because as you said it's 20 years old that makes it among some of the oldest open source projects that are still really vibrant and really active um you know some of the linux distributions maybe are some of the few things that are actually older in the open source world um and so um it's interesting because we're sort of writing the book of open source's history as we go through drupal's history um but if we look back at the beginning of the content management system uh, ecosystem uh, 20 years ago when we were first getting early projects like Drupal, like WordPress, like Typo3 or Joomla, some of these other projects that are out there. Um, the initial goal was pretty simple. It was just to do what it said on the tin. It was just to be like, hey, let's have an actual user interface for content generation and management um, so that we can do the basics, so that we can build blogs, so that we can make pages, so that there's an editorial interface for managing websites instead of writing our raw HTML, right? So um, but what I think hasn't, I think people know intuitively, but haven't made the connection is that CMS means something much broader today. And it's because these different projects, uh, proprietary and open source, um, have gone through sort of speciation, um, as they've evolved. So whereas some of these projects continue to focus on the like mass market, easy user interface, blogging tools, and brochureware and different things, they found their different specialties. And in Drupal specifically, the specialty we found was in um, serving these sophisticated and ambitious ideas that are often used on an enterprise scale or by a particularly ambitious kind of startup experience. And so what distinguishes that kind of modern digital CMS from um, just what you think of when you think of the old fashioned word CMS is really, I think, three key components for Drupal. Um, one is the fact that it can act as a structured data engine. So that means that um, you get rich metadata for all the content you've created and the content is available as like reusable atomic components. You can remix this content into different displays across your site or across channels, right? Not just on a website, but in a mobile application, uh, in a smart device, in a voice applications like, you know, Alexa, um, that kind of thing. Um, to go along with that, you, of course, need the ways to, to actually access permission, remix these things. So having a really robust API-driven architecture is sort of a, another core of what makes Drupal appealing to these more ambitious use cases and these mid to enterprise level users, right? So um, every sort of function of Drupal is accessible by the API. Drupal consumes its own APIs, and that means the ability to flexibly remix these concepts and application layers in different ways is extremely strong, extremely powerful, um, and easy to use. And then, you know, the last part to go along with this, which maybe relates most to the old fashioned view of um, what a CMS is, is this concept of robust role and permission management and how that flows into 
workflows that you can create, right? When you're talking about a modern digital experience, you're not managing it with a single person behind the desk doing your whole website for you just, just so that you have something. You've got whole teams. Um, and so you need editorial workflows, you need roles and permissions, and you even need those kinds of workflows within other parts of management. So if you're managing your commerce ac application or you're managing some other experience, you may need to control who's allowed to make your new products, to set your discount levels, to set all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, that structured data, the APIs, and the sort of roles and permission system is, I think, what evolved kind of organically in Drupal from the early seeds of how it began to differentiate itself over the course of those 20 years. And those feed many, many other related features, but I think that gives it the power to do what it does today. And that's what separates Drupal from a lot of the other CMS solutions. So, you know, it's interesting in e-commerce, we run into things like uh, PIMS, product information management systems. And it's because a lot of e-commerce platforms, they're not really intended to be the data master for, you know, for certain types of data, especially as it's going to be used in different places. You know, you talk about uh, more or less, uh, you know, feeding the content, the information that's going to be in the mobile app or maybe some kind of Internet of Things display or, uh, yeah. you know, all sorts of different endpoints. Uh, that <laughs> the world is evolving and being able to really have a system that you can leverage effectively for that um, certainly makes a lot of sense. So in a nutshell, basically, there's platforms out there if somebody wants to create you know, a, a brochure site with a few pages or um, create a blog or something a little bit more simplistic. Um, but if they're looking for something that's going to represent their larger, uh, more established organization and, and give them uh, you know, more of that comprehensive feature suite. That's that's the direction yeah. that and Drupal has evolved through. Exactly. And I would say like the simple way to think about it is if your digital presence is a core part of your user or customer experience, if their journey in through your digital application is a core part of your experience, Drupal is probably the right CMS choice for you. If your web presence is sort of a secondary fulfillment role, if it's part of your just your marketing operations or something like that, right? But it and it supports a business case that's not digital first. Then maybe it's not so much as important. Maybe one of the more simplistic options is is what you're looking for. And I think it's important to realize that you know this this speciation exists in the market, and you should move to the tool that works for you. Um, but for those for those more ambitious use cases, Drupal is is exactly um, exactly the case that you should be taking a look at. It makes sense. And, you know, I, I was doing some homework, uh, as I always uh, <laughs> strive to do before these these episodes get taped. And I saw on Built With um, about a half million active sites uh, operating with, with the Drupal software, according to their stats. Does that align with your internal statistics, uh, plus or minus? Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, our internal st statistics show more, actually. We're, we're actually really at about across all of the current versions. So Drupal 7 is still supported through November of 2022, and there's Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 available as well. Um, there's a net total of about a million that we see from the um, reported requests for updates that come back to us. When, when a Drupal site comes and says, hey, I'd like a, to see if there are updates for the modules I have installed, we get that and we can tell, okay, this many sites are contacting us. So. So it's close to a million. We it's increasingly been actually harder to identify what a site is built on with some of these tools like Built With and others, just because so many people are putting a, um, a different front end on. They're using front end frameworks like React and Vue and and others. Mm -hmm. Angular. Yeah, get into these progressive web apps and, and right, all this other exactly. Tech and, and underneath really it is Drupal, but you can't hook. necessarily yeah. see that. So that's a problem we're also thinking about trying to solve, just because. We want to make sure that people still have that visibility into where Drupal's being used in the market, even though it's increasingly in those places. So that's interesting. Um, you know, with that in mind, are there uh, showcase customers that you think of or users of of Drupal? If someone isn't quite as familiar with Drupal, because I think this happens a lot that um, you know, uh, an organization, uh, a hospital, a university, um, a government agency, whatever it may be, they put out an RFP uh, for a new website to replace something or or for some new endeavor but they don't necessarily know exactly what they need and <laughs> in some cases uh drupal is going up in front of someone that's not as familiar with it yet uh, totally yeah so who comes to mind yeah well you know to address what it what it's like from an evaluator point of view it can be difficult right in 
in us in some spaces where you have a content management system that is very very specifically targeted to a certain use case it's like you know exactly what you're getting out of the box and because drupal is this sort of framework driven cms that's used in different places it, it totally can be harder to find those comparable examples fortunately on drupal.org you can see case studies from specific industry verticals which show not only that how drupal is used there but also how it's configured and what additional modules are used for that kind of industry use case, which can be super helpful if you're out there evaluating how to use Drupal in, say, uh, financial tech or e-commerce or other, other areas. But in terms of specific sites that are out there, um, government is huge. Um, so um, the State Department, the Department of the Interior, the, um, the CDC's National Prevention Information Network, uh, where, where you're seeing all your COVID updates. All of those no, they're are just on. getting a tiny bit of traffic these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition, NASA.gov, IRS.gov. Um, uh, yeah. A lot of the, a lot of these other um, uh, sort of major application levels um, for a while before it was sort of suspended um, data.gov, the open access to, to, to government data was, was based on Drupal. Uh, perhaps it may come back if they choose to share that sort of data again. Um, but yeah, used extensively in the government use space. Um, and honestly, it's kind of funny because that actually goes back to um, the Howard Dean presidential campaign, which was sort of well known as the first digital presidential campaign, right? And that was actually done with an early version of Drupal. That was the Drupal 5 era. Um, uh, then, but there's other industries as well, right? So um, uh, higher education and libraries are a huge um, category for Drupal users. So uh, I think Every Ivy League institution um, certainly um, uses Drupal. Uh, uh, Stanford Law uses Drupal. A number of the library systems uh, throughout the country use Drupal. Multnomah County here in um, uh, Oregon, uh, for example. That's so interesting. You so you've got these, you know, huge, uh, you know, federal departments and organizations that have substantial budgets. You have more local government as well, and and then you've got the um, you know, nonprofits and for-profit uh, businesses, the, you know, the NGOs and other, uh, yeah, other folks and that kind of fill in the mix. I mean, with with, it, with a million sites live. <laughs> yeah, it's, you kind of have something of everything. But what you see across these and even across some of the more like so some of the other, um, what do we say, corporate use cases. Um, so Tesla uses Drupal for their primary web presence. Also, Lufthansa uses Drupal and not just for like, a Lufthansa.com, they actually use Drupal to do the seat back entertainment backend for your huh. in-flight capabilities, which is a really unusual use case, but shows some of that evolution, right? And the common thread, whether you're talking about these like small startups with their super ambitious cases, or you're talking about big government organizations, is they're trying to do some kind of sophisticated form of user engagement. It might be civic engagement with uh, the citizenry to provide like key information localized to the region you're in. It might just be helping you categorize what's on your library shelf, or it might be having you like configure and purchase your Tesla. It could be all sorts of things, right? So um, there's a there's a there's a lot to it, but the but that underlying thread is there's a user journey that is fundamentally digital baked into to to the key use case for all of these sites. Hmm. So whether they're a startup, whether they're you know, still in a growth phase, they're not an enterprise yet. You know, there's plenty of, of SMB use case here, uh, you know, for, especially yeah. for aspirational companies, because it's more about the tech than it is about the size. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, people often make that, um, make the assumption that, oh gosh, because it's used in these huge use cases, it must only work in the enterprise with large enterprise scale teams. But that's really not true. You can also, if you're, the, if you're that scrappy startup, mm -hmm. You can probably prototype that digital experience idea in Drupal in like an afternoon um, to get that proof of concept of some new interaction that you're trying to create and then leverage that into, into um, some new launch. So, And, you know, you've hit a couple of times on the fact that it's an open source community. Uh, I know that a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, would appreciate that in general. I'm certainly a huge proponent of open source projects, um, you know, how many devs are actually contributing to Drupal? Is is that something that's an an upswing? Is that you know something that uh, that you track closely at this point? 
Yeah, so we do track this. Um, we have some good metrics about it. And um, contribution is complex in a project to scale of Drupal. So to step back for a second, right? Drupal has its core code base. And then Drupal has modules and themes and distributions, which are just the extensions you can add on to Drupal. And these are all hosted on Drupal.org, just regular projects that can be put together. And there's over 40,000 of those individual projects just on Drupal.org between the core code and all these different extensions that you could use in Remix, right? Great. So, so if you wanted to review them all, we'd have to lock you in that room for just a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be it would That's be a sizable quite, catalog. Yeah, it would be quite a lot. And so all of those people uh, who maintain those projects or contribute to those projects or file bugs in the, against those projects are contributing in some way. So if we work kind of outside to inside um, on Drupal.org, um, in a in an like an annual sense, there's probably a hundred thousand unique individuals in some way contributing activity to the actual Drupal project, whether it's a contributed module or core itself or something like that, or even just commenting and reviewing rather than doing code. Um, right? There's contributions other than code that are important, the design, the user interface element. Um, then if we sort of zoom in a little bit to how many contributors work on Drupal core itself. Um, I think for the, when we did the math on how many people were involved in um, Drupal 9, um, I think it's over 10,000 people were sort of credited in uh, being involved in the, the, the issues being resolved and over 4,000 were in the actual commit credit of a git commit credit, which is enormous. Um, I remember when Drupal 8 first came out, I think it was something like 3,600 core contributors, so it's grown since then. And even then, that was more than three times the number of core contributors to the PHP language itself. So even though Drupal's written in PHP, we have, we have more than three times the number of contributors to Drupal as a framework. Um, and of course, there's overlap. The people cross-collaborate. Cross but it's really robust, and it's a really powerful ecosystem. To be honest, this, this community of open source developers is really the main reason that, that I so enjoy being involved uh, in this project. Yeah. And with so many projects and so many contributors from your seat personally, is it sometimes a lot to uh, to manage? Um, do you think that sometimes maybe there's some duplication of effort somewhere or, um, you know, you wind up with, with a lot, you know, modules that do similar things that maybe <laughs> their forces could have been combined? Uh, you yeah. know, do you find that sometimes that's almost a challenge that the community has grown large, uh, even by open source standards? Yeah, so, well, to answer your question, let me put out a plea to your listeners. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're an organization out there who's interested in giving back to open source, and maybe you use Drupal, um, maybe you're not so sure about the code contribution side, but you have some project management skills. That's one of those areas that people don't realize are critical for open source contribution is people with, with project management capability who can help organize the efforts of all these kinds of contributors and developers that I've just been talking about. And yeah, it is a challenge. So um, there is a, a large group of volunteer uh, and sponsored core maintainers who are responsible for specific sort of subsystems and aspects of Drupal core. Like someone might be responsible for whether uh, for for approving whether a certain new API gets added or um, uh, approving uh, new menu items that are part of the ad administrative interface, things like that. And so they can help do some of this coordination and initiative organization. And we do some of that as well. And the community as a whole kind of has an ethos of, hey, let's build something together rather than build it twice. But it's absolutely true that that occasionally something gets re-implemented a couple of times. You find multiple modules uh, that sort of do the same thing. Um, wherever we can, we try and match make those people together to build that into a single thing that does it better. But um, yeah, that's it's, a it's a good challenge. problem to have having yeah. you know more volunteers and more people that are driven to build the best mousetrap possible <laughs> than uh, yeah. than the opposite. That's for sure. Um, and the growth is kind of astounding, um, you know, especially yeah. there's more and more SaaS out there and more and more closed systems. And, uh, you know, I always think that innovation really thrives in the open source. Uh, and I've been proven right on that many a yeah. time. In terms of the distribution of code being submitted, are there any large contributors um, that really stand out from the crowd, um, you know, big agencies or 
or orgs that are contributing a lot. And, um, you know, is anyone really contributing maybe too much where if their org went under, you're in trouble? <laughs> uh, well, we never want to lose a major contributor, but the Drupal code base isn't actually fundamentally held by just one single organization, right? There are a number of organizations that contribute and and they're, they're across all sorts of categories. So we have um, sort of people who work specifically in the Drupal ecosystem. Um, so they, they specifically do Drupal services. So folks like JetRails who've also contributed to the Drupal Association and the Drupal project um, uh, and many others who do, who do business specifically using Drupal and then also end user organizations who use Drupal. So we've had some huge pharmaceutical companies, for example, both Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson have been major contributors to Drupal um, in both uh, code and financial support for the association. So these are uh, for-profit companies that, in essence, they're developing things, and rather than keeping it all proprietary, keeping it all as externalized modules that only they have access to, or core edits that you know that they're trying to run on their side and, and run some offshoot, uh, you know, of the the Drupal core. Um, that they're forking off of it, they're actually contributing back to the core so that these are things that fit nicely and, and that they're sharing it with everyone. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty incredible. Do shareholders know that they're doing that? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that, that's kind of the point, right? Because I talk to people, I speak to people all the time who say, I would love for my organization to contribute, but I don't know how we can get back, get past the legal consideration of handing our IP over and just making it public, right? Um, and you know, let me tell you, if a pharmaceutical company can make the case, anyone can make the case <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> that it's worthwhile. And, 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 and you know, the, the, the folks involved with this, um, uh, uh, both of those organizations, um, will tell you that the reason that they do this is because it produces a better outcome. They, they are able to, uh, by contributing, um, both recruit better talent to their internal teams and influence the product direction of Drupal. Um, and sure, maybe something that Pfizer contributes winds up also getting used by Johnson & Johnson and vice versa. But the fact that it gave them a leg up in one small area doesn't hurt anyone. It sort of raises all boats and they can still keep you know, some element of the secret sauce that's probably not just about their site management tool um, uh, to themselves if they need to. So um, you know, they've made this argument that it's better for us to work in an ecosystem where we not only uh, have a, the support of 100,000 contributors around the world also working on it, but we have the chance to, to, to make changes ourselves and, and have those become things that get supported by that larger ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I, I think so, that's something that so many people miss sometimes that, uh, you know, because conceptually in a capitalist society, sometimes it's hard to understand how open source is really, uh, you know, viable or or vibrant or uh, or valuable. But you know, if I'm this big company um, and I want to make sure that as updates are pushed out for Drupal, that um, that they're compatible with these things that we're doing, you know, that and yeah. simultaneously, if we think that we started on version one of something cool. But, you know, do we really have the, the time and resource to really do it better than everyone else in the world? No, right. put it out there. Let everyone else keep building on it so that we wind up with, with the best things since sliced bread. Um, yep. and, and like you say, you know, back to that old, old boats rise together, uh, you know, yeah. working theory. Yeah, exactly. Like a great example. So um, some uh, members of the team over at Pfizer were pretty involved in the uh, workflow uh, module in which in Drupal 7 was part of the contrib ecosystem and became uh, part of Drupal core during the life cycle of Drupal 8 into Drupal 9. So now it's maintained by a, a much broader slice of the community and it, and it went from something that was, you know, a combination of an internal use case and, hey, that's probably maybe useful for other folks to something that became a generic solution that, that just increases the horizon. It lets you be further ahead with how you're innovating compared to your competitors because you, you've already got those first three steps filled out for you. It goes right back to, do you want to be the ones that build every every line of code, everything uh, for your website and in general, your tech stack? Or you know, do you want to be part of something bigger where you, that's not all your technical debt to manage? Right, exactly. Uh, you know, we're... <laughs> This is stand, stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah. And 
Um, and to be honest, there's also, um, this, is, this is not exactly cynical, but maybe a calculating view. If you're in an industry where um, it becomes an industry best practice to, to use a specific kind of open source implementation or to use open source, there is safety in that you know your competitors are using the same technology. You know that you're you're adopting a similar best practice. So, yeah. And so, thinking about other open source, um, you know, I know that with companies like uh, Magento now an Adobe company, the roadmap is set by Adobe. Um, that's who determines for the core what's going to happen next. Um, obviously, there's a, a larger, more vibrant community that uh, you know that's uh, bringing bugs to uh, you know up to them and, and that's working on new features as part of community engineering, as part of, um, you know, open source contribution and certainly extensions and themes and other things being created uh, externally. But what happens in the case of Drupal? Because, you know, what I've been, you know, hearing here and, and you know, my knowledge of it, uh, there's so much that's actually pushing through Drupal as, as maybe a broader open source effort. Uh, who sets the roadmap? Yeah. Gosh, it's a good question. So, and and like all things in open source, the answer is a little bit complicated, but maybe not as complicated as it seems at first. So, um, again, I mentioned Dries Beitart, the founder of Drupal, earlier in this conversation, and he's still the official project lead and heavily involved. And so, um, at each DrupalCon, which happens twice a year, um, he uh, even during COVID, we're doing them virtually now. Uh, at each DrupalCon, he will set out a set of strategic initiatives for Drupal Core that are um, sort of a vision statement for where he believes Drupal Core should focus next, um, either on doubling down on something we're doing well or that we've seen work well in the contribution ecosystem that should become part of Core, or in the direction of some uh, kind of over-the-horizon future-facing features. Um, now, just because he's designated those as the only as the strategic official initiatives for the project doesn't mean those are the only things that can be worked on. So again, um, if an organization chooses to contribute to Drupal and they choose, hey, we want to focus an initiative on this particular area, they can often move those forward too. And there's a kind of a consensus building process between, um, you know, whoever's doing the work, the duocracy that is open source, and the kind of core maintainers who. Um, help to govern particular components of Drupal. So, you know, if someone came along and said, we want to um, make an update to the, like, the way the editorial workflows work, and, you know, we're a, a, a newspaper company or something like that, we have some good ideas, um, they could propose that and work on that. And the core maintainers would be there to not to say, yes or no, we definitely want that, so much as to say, if you include that, Let's make that feature generic so it works across more use, use cases. Let's make this do this, that kind of a thing. Um, and it sort of evolves from there. Um, increasingly, though, we are looking at specific strategic partnerships to try and help move certain things forward. So we do actually try and go seek out someone who might be a Drupal end user who has a great use case and say, hey, um, let us at the Drupal Association help you contribute to the project uh, to move this particular initiative forward. Or we've even had uh, other kinds of organizations come to us and say, we think this is important. We'd like Drupal to adopt it. Can you help us? So for example, Google contacted the association just recently and said, hey, we'd love it. It would be great for the web and the performance of the web in general if every Drupal site automatically set images to lazy load by default. Um, could we propose an initiative and sponsor the association to help move that forward? So that's another way that we're able to, to make things happen. And that's been proceeding nicely. Wow. That's an interesting one. You know, and the openness, the ability to do that, um, I, I think is phenomenal um, to have companies come together and say, how do we make the internet a better place for everyone? Um, yeah. How do we solve these issues? I think that we're going to continue to see um, issues like that. In recent years, we've heard a lot about, you know, site speed and, you know, on the web hosting side, <laughs> it's certainly something that, uh, that for years has been a big deal. But, um, you know, now as things power forward into progressive web apps and, uh, and, and newer tech and, um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, I yeah. think that in a lot of cases, it does take collaboration. It does take an effort um, from some 
bigger and smaller players to combine efforts and help steer in a direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we ever want to get there in a holistic way. And, is, you know, I think that's going to lead me into a, a good question that's popping into my mind. You mentioned Drupal 7, 8, 9, that there's support for multiple versions. Right. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I, I want to hear about what's new in Drupal 9, but I, I kind of want to start off with um, how hard is it to upgrade between these versions? Because I know, I mean, yeah. I, I'm living and breathing this, you know, magenta one end of life that happened at the end of June. And there's right. still, depending on whose data you want to look at anywhere from maybe, you know, 90 plus thousand to 200,000 uh, magenta one site still in the wild. And it is, uh, you know, it is painful to try to get people to upgrade because it's a replatforming. It's a complete rethink. Yeah. What is, how do, how easy or difficult is the upgrade path between Drupal versions? Yeah, so it's a good question because it's changed across the versions I just talked about. So seven to eight did involve a major re-architecture of Drupal. And in some ways you can think of that transition process as being like midway between a like upgrade migration and a replatforming. Um, it's not quite as overwhelming perhaps as you might think a, a, a replatforming would be because it is still Drupal to Drupal. There's a lot of data structures that are actually still very similar and there's migration tools that have been built explicitly for that purpose. But it isn't literally a just update your software to this version, automatically uh, get onto the right stuff and it's going to work. There is a migration process involved. Um, and that was tricky. Um, and I know it's tough. The Magenta world is going through the same sort of thing. But that, that kind of backwards compatibility break um, major uh, uh, upgrade slash migration process um, was important to maintain the level of innovation. A lot of things changed when we met to Drupal 8. We started uh, adopting other open source libraries as, as fundamental components of Drupal itself. So we use Symfony as basic architecture, CK editor for editing the Twig templating engine. Uh, for making themes, like there were a lot of key architectural components that changed. Well, it was great also, for the community because you wind up with a wider base of developers that already have familiarity uh, yeah, with exactly. a lot of the, the tech under the hood. We get to do just what I was saying before. Why build it all yourself when you can build, uh, stand on the shoulder of giants and build other components? So there was a lot of that. And then there was the move to object-oriented PHP, uh, a number of things that in the long term are going to be helpful, but involved a slightly painful tear off the bandage period. However, what this leads us to is a great situation. Like, okay, so you're on the Drupal train and whoops, unfortunately you have to change tracks when you went from seven to eight. But from eight and beyond, um, the philosophy has been to um, create a continuous innovation model. So uh, Drupal adopted semantic versioning, which basically is just a way to designate, this is a, a small non-breaking change, this is a feature release, and this. This is a release that breaks backwards compatibility. We also switched to releasing new features every six months on a rigid cycle in, in point releases like 8.1, 8.2, 8.3. Whatever's ready comes out in this regular release. So this continues. Well, that allows organizations to plan, at least resource-wise, what, <laughs> what they're going to need to be doing internally. So yeah. that's got to be tremendously helpful to the owners of these websites. It's, it's both really good for planning. It's also really good for security hygiene and being able to have a, a minor release, which isn't a whole re-release of the software to align with various PHP version support issues and things like that. And it's also really good because those new versions are, uh, again, like each of those point releases is added as a new feature with uh, a guaranteed backwards compatibility and a deprecation policy for when something might eventually go away. So for example, rather than having to break something or having, having to warn folks, hey, in this next feature, we're taking out the old way of uploading images and putting in the new way of uploading images, there's a strong commitment that all the way through the eight life, life cycle, any feature you've used continues to work and new things are just added while the old ones are marked to be removed. And that's what happens in the tick over to nine. In nine, the old things are removed and the new ways of doing them become the primary way. But that's also sort of the only change. So the code base may have changed significantly, but if you were following all of the updates before that, if you were on 8.8 or 8.9 when 9.0 came out, um, you could just do that as a regular update. And it was pretty much 
no harder than an update from 8.5 to 8.6. So I saw people on Twitter on Drupal 9's launch day, 15 minutes after it had launched saying, I've actually finished upgrading my site. That's incredible, right? It, it was, it's an amazing change compared to the, the seven to eight pain, yeah, which is a necessary fantastic. pain. I, I imagine that there's still a lot of people stuck on seven because they haven't allocated the, the, the time, resources, the dollars or <laughs> whatever currency being such a global uh, yeah. software, whatever it may be, that they have not um, been able to, uh, to make that happen. I, I know this is an odd year, of course, where organizations' budgets have shifted. And so maybe if something was planned, they might not quite be where they, they hope to have been with it. Uh, you know, I suppose that that's going to bring some security challenges, as always happens in these situations, that there are sites yeah. that are not being managed the way that any of us uh, you know, would intend them to be. Yeah, and there's there's a few things going on to mitigate that. So we did extend the the end of life date for Drupal 7. It was going to be November of 2021, and it's now going to be November of 2022. Because again, we realized that people probably had budget freezes that were not expected and not planned for this year. Um, and so we want to give them a little bit more time. Um, we do have a strategy to limit the number of changes. There's not much that's going to change in Drupal 7 between now and then. It's just that, you know, maybe there'll be occasionally security releases. Um, but the Innovation is happening in uh, nine and beyond at this point. Um, uh, relatedly, we are working on some tools to to make the the total cost of ownership process, regardless of your Drupal version, easier. So um, there's uh, things like uh, an auto updates initiative that's in process to help automate the process of updating your site, uh, which would be great. There's actually a version in Contrib already that was sponsored by the European Commission last year that we worked on with them pretty extensively. So we're working on the core version of that next. And that, that should help with the maintenance uh, for, for uh, folks out there using these Drupal sites. That makes sense. I mean, look, from the web hosting perspective, you know, we just want sites to be updated because we're not, we stop at the first line of code. We're not going to be, uh, yeah. you know, in, installing security patches or software updates into the Drupal or any other uh, uh, application software that they're running within the hosting environment. Uh, yeah. And so when they're not properly maintaining, um, you know, that just puts more pressure on us. You know, we've got the, the web application firewalling and the intrusion detection and the malware scanning and all the least privileged yeah. access and, you know, round the clock monitoring and everything that we're supposed to have. But, uh, you know, no, no one wants to play a game of whack-a-mole with it. Totally. So. And, you know, that reminds me, actually, is another thing. If you're one of those users out there with the Drupal site and the particular hardship for you is just, oh gosh, it's a Wednesday security release window. Maybe I'm in a different time zone. So I'm having to ask staff to stay late or start early, that kind of a thing. That, that can be kind of tough. And one of the things we're doing really recently, you mentioned web application firewalls. The Drupal Association is now operating one that can be run um, uh, by itself or in parallel to existing hosting and application infrastructure that is specifically security related for um, any possible like highly critical vulnerabilities, right? If there was something that was a mass exploitable issue, and you were part of this program, which we call Drupal Steward, there would be a firewall in place where the security team can make sure that your site's protected even before you have the time to update the patch. So if that's something that's really concerning to you, or if you don't want to keep staff on call, I'd encourage you to go to drupal.org and, and look up the Drupal Steward program um, or reach out to me, and uh, I'd be happy to talk to anyone out there about it. Yeah. You know, from my vantage point, everyone should have a, a WAFA web application firewall that uh, it should just be the standard <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that it, it is difficult um to count on your site to always be patched against everything uh instantaneously whereas you know good security companies can can handle that great to see the uh you know the drupal uh, association taking initiative there and you know, let's go back to Drupal 9 for a moment. So yeah. obviously there was enough change that your team determined or um, or kind of back to who sets the roadmap, right? That it was determined that uh, that there was going to be a break. And, yeah. and the same that's happened over and over again. We were, we're up to version 9. Um, anything particularly exciting in the changeover from 8 to 9? Um, anything that people today, you know, because... You know, yeah. when a version is is running its course and it's not going to be supported, it's obvious that you should upgrade. But beyond right. that, you know, if there are security updates, there's always the question of, well, you know, do I really need to upgrade now? What's in it for me? Uh, is there value in this? Um, right. So what uh, what brought yeah, about that shift? 
There's a few things, I think. So, so you know, Drupal 9.0 and Drupal 8.9 were basically identical. One, they had the same features. It's just that 9 was what I said earlier. It had that deprecated code. You dropped out all of the old stuff that, you know, legacy, right. basically. Which, right, exactly. You know, in terms of maintaining security, that's a lot less code to worry about in terms of speed and conflicts and other things, a lot cleaner. So... It's very rare for a code base to get smaller over its <laughs> lifetime. And that was one of the opportunities where we actually did that. Um, 9.0 is smaller than 8.9. And what that meant was choosing that point as a clean break when we know that the update is actually quite easy. Like you, all you need to do is make sure the code you're using isn't using those deprecated functions. And what we did to, to make that an easy process was there's automated tools that we made available and that are also run on Drupal.org to make sure that your contributed module or your personal custom module isn't using anything that will break. And it'll tell you and even generate a patch for you to fix it. So for the first time in Drupal's history, like uh, more than half of the top 100, or excuse me, top 500 Drupal modules were already compatible at the time of release. And also for the first time in Drupal's history, there are contributed modules that work both on Drupal 8 and on Drupal 9 without you having to do anything special so that you know that when you update, it's already working. Um, so it's a really cool time in terms of the upgrade cycle. And then it's also a cool time in terms of real features, right? So like we realized the promise of making that update process easier. And in doing that, we've proved that this six month feature release cycle really works, really lets us add innovation. So for for me, the main things that are really cool right now is that there's focus on, um, cost of ownership and ease of use features. So a lot of the eight cycle was about some foundational technical features that were really powerful that let you do a lot of things from an API point of view, uh, content structure point of view um, that might not have been possible before. And that put us in a place where we're actually like well ahead of just about anything else out there when it comes to these sort of decoupled multi-channel new non-web digital experience device solutions. But wrapping some of those things and making them more accessible to users um, is, I think, going to be really important. So in Drupal 9, there's new admin interfaces being worked on. There is the direct inter- inter- integration of JavaScript components so that 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 desire to use more JavaScript front end uh, can be, I mean, it can already be done as a decoupled solution, but actually just building it into some of Drupal's default front end. Um, there is uh, like I said earlier, further focus on automatic updates, making the process of maintaining your site uh, easier and, and a lower cost process. So there's there's a number of strategic initiatives that are really, really cool coming in Drupal 9. And, you know, th- that's the thing. These days, it's just as long as you can keep up with your regular six-month update, you're going to get that continuous innovation. That's fantastic. And I, I really like hearing that the modules and things uh that there is less uh, of a problem uh, upgrading your core um, because of modules. Um, I know that you know, people ask me about, you know, in the Magento world, when it's time to upgrade. Magento most, uh, most recently put out version 2.4, and there's still maybe, as of now, 10% of the, uh, the Magento extensions uh, in the Magento marketplace that that work with 2.3 are certified as being compatible with 2.4. And so that really makes it hard to be an early adopter or to, to upgrade um, exactly when you'd like to that, you know, in a lot of cases, you're waiting for the community to catch up uh, yeah. as, as opposed to things moving along at the same speed. So um, yeah. that, that's particularly interesting. It's been actually pretty incredible because one of the one of the things that I think we'll start seeing in other software, like just in the software development world at large that we're learning from this and kind of sharing from people is that um, we're talking about, the core maintaining team is talking about making it part of the rules of whenever something is declared as deprecated, whenever we decide, okay, this image handling is gonna be done in a different way, that before that change gets committed into core, um, we should write an automatic, uh, rector rule, rector being a technology that generates patches to fetch these deprecations. So if we, that's effectively what we did kind of after the fact, right before Drupal 9 launched. But if we do it as we go, we'll, we'll get to a place where in Drupal 10, we'll be able to run a process to automatically generate the compatibility fixes for 
all of those common deprecations, um, which would be really incredible. It would be almost, you know, automatic deprecation solutioning for the whole software ecosystem. Um, I think it's, I think it's really neat and it's going to be good for the project in the long term. So you've got a lot to be excited about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, for better or worse, I've brought up Magento a few times. Um, sure. Drupal Commerce has been out there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, how integral is Drupal Commerce to the Drupal ecosystem? Is that, you know, is that really, uh, you know, I know that WooCommerce has become very, very central uh, to the WordPress community and, uh, you know, certainly plays a, a big role uh, within the automatic organization uh, overall. How do you see Drupal Commerce within the overall uh, community and ecosystem that is Drupal? Yeah, so um, I think it's a good way to think of it, similar similar to your WooCommerce example, but that Drupal Commerce has a ecosystem of its own within the Drupal world, right? So it is a commerce integration framework, not just an off-the-shelf commerce solution. So again, you have the, the commerce framework, and then you might install. You know, you're you're an Offnet user, you're a Braintree user, you're a the, the the variety of extensions is very customizable in a very Drupal-y sort of way, right? So, um, so you can kind of build on that custom solution. And the commerce ecosystem is one of the most widely used set of contributed uh, modules in the Drupal space. That said, it's not the only way to do commerce in Drupal. There are some other solutions as well, and there are, are other kinds of integrations. But, um, but yeah, it's a very popular one, and it's used at massive scale. I think we have a case study right now for a um, a chain of restaurants in China, I believe that is using Drupal and Drupal Commerce for like uh, over a billion dollars worth of food transaction volume across like point of sale in a, in this whole restaurant chain. Um, wow. Incredible! Um, so, wow, huh. <laughs> yeah, the, the use cases are always astounding. Yeah. Uh, I know that, you know, there are ways to leverage, you know, all these platforms together. So headless applications where, you know, one system is the front end, the other is, is the back. Um, yeah. I know that I, I've seen um, Magento sites using Drupal as a front end, as, as the CMS. I, I know that uh, uh, I've run into not, uh, you know, not too long ago, um, Drupal being used as the, as the head, as the front end um, for big commerce. Uh, with yep. their headless initiatives, so sort of marrying together uh, SaaS and uh, an open source um, in, into something pretty interesting. So, uh, you know, I think that is part of the beauty is the ability to to bring all of this together um, in for whatever the best use case is. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe there is someone out there that really you know doesn't want to maintain all the PCI compliance and uh, absolutely. You know, not to say that. No matter what, there's still some PCI compliance footprint if, if you're using uh, an open CMS that, that you've got to take care of. We're, <laughs> we're very attuned to that around here. Um, yeah. but, uh, but nonetheless, I, I think that it's, it's particularly interesting that we've seen the industry as a whole um, become so much more flexible. And it's not just about, well, I'm running this software and I'm so, you know, that everybody's uh, using more complex APIs these days to, uh, yeah. to really focus on what the user experience and what the end results are that they're trying to achieve, not just what can the software do today. Yeah, and if I make an analogy back to what I said before, right? So 20 years ago, the CMS ecosystem kind of emerged as, as if something came from nothing and everybody tried to build this new set of web ecosystems, right? And at first, everybody decided we all have to do everything, right? Everybody was trying to build a, the complete CMS, right? And then I talked about how the CMS space had this speciation that happened where we, these different projects focused in different areas on different markets. And then eventually we even got to the point where you have the kind of commodified, totally basic features in your like, you know, whatever your Wix Squarespace for the, for the low level minimal sites out there. Um, similarly, that's happening with commerce applications and all sorts of other third-party technology applications where they've moved from, hey, we have to be a single monolithic solution to we should integrate with, you know, you want your best commerce solution with your best newsletter solution, with your best CRM, with your best whatever, right? And where Drupal excels in particular is the thing it's best at is being the connective tissue between those other components, 
Um, so I think that's a, a really powerful uh, place to be. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And I, I think uh, one of the things that draws me to Drupal is, uh, I don't know if it's the right word or not, but some of that hubris that's caked in, that this is really something that's evolving, you know, and, and while it's powerful and, uh, and it's used by huge organizations, it's also in a constant state of improvement and flux. And there's no question about that. <laughs> it's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, and that's important. I think it should be that way. It's like you want to see, you don't want to go stale in this space, right? It's very easy to, to rapidly find yourself feeling a, a decade behind and looking two decades behind if, if you don't have that kind of continuous innovation. So, Yeah. And you know, what types of challenges do you keep you up at night if it, I hope none, but <laughs> you know, what do you think that the, that Drupal may be in for in the near future? Um, you know, that, that it will certainly keep, keep you and the team busy. And, uh, uh, you know, is it up and comers and new challengers in the space? Is it changes in technology overall? Um, is it the growth of the platform and, uh, you know, trying to, and the growth of the community and trying to keep all that organized? Yeah. Um, you know, if anything, what, what really is uh, the tough spot here? I think there's two areas that, um, that if anything keeps me up at night, it's those two. So it's, um, on the one hand, it's agility, and on the other hand, it's sustainability, right? So on the agility side, um, you know, 100,000 annual contributors or even, you know, the like 4,000 plus core commit code contributors, whatever, is our... That's a lot of cats to herd. It's a big ship to steer. Whatever metaphor you <laughs> want to use, it's hard to quickly change direction as things evolve um, in principle. Uh, the flip side of that is when you have so many involved people and so many, um, and it's open source, like occasionally you'll have someone who just shows up and says, hey, there's that cool new voice interface for Alexa. I'm going to write the Drupal integration for it. And so in some ways you can evolve quickly, but in other ways it's hard to change direction. So for me, one of those concerns is how do we how do we maintain agility and how do we uh, maintain focus? Um, and it goes earlier to that conversation about can we get more people participating as contributors? Can we get more project management tools? Can we replicate things like the Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer contribution experiences or the Google sponsorship? Like, can we create more of a contribution ecosystem even than we have? Because we have. We have something large in an, in an individual way, but I want to replicate the, that on the initiative scale, not just the individual scale. I think that would be really powerful. Um, and if, you know, if we can't do that, the risk, of course, is, okay, we continue barreling down a certain path and we miss a whole sort of technology area um, that we would, would have liked to, to, to be a part of. Um, so yeah. then... You know, the other issue is sustainability. Um, we're an open source project. So in principle, we're relying on all of this code being donated. Now, that's not to say that nobody's getting paid to do this work, right? Within the nonprofit at the association, the, there's only 16 of us, but, you know, we're, we're salaried employees. And um, then among our thousands and thousands of contributors, something like 61%, uh, we, we have the statistics on this, of the people who contribute to Drupal are being paid by their day job to do so. They're not just doing it in nights and weekends volunteer time. And the other 40% are doing it in that nights and weekends volunteer time. Wow. But, you know, that's interesting because we, we, do, we don't sell Drupal. We, we, uh, we support the ecosystem that enables that whole contributor base through hosting DrupalCons and having DrupalCon sponsorships. And that's in a real difficult place right now with COVID. Yeah, I know to, you had the Drupal Cares initiative. Um, yeah. And that's actually, you know, when we started to step up to the plate, which I was very excited to see, but it's, um, you know, it's definitely a tough year on nonprofits and especially ones that are so reliant on in-person events. Yeah, exactly. It's really, it's really hard uh, close to for a while, close to 70% of our annual budget was, came out of revenues from in-person DrupalCons. And that makes, that's why we had to do the Drupal Cares fundraising campaign. That was why it was so crucial that folks like JetRail stepped up and contributed to that because it kept, uh, you know, kept us alive this year from a nonprofit perspective. The project- I, I, I was uh, 
astounded by how many individuals and companies, uh, you know, just didn't hesitate um, to support the association. I think that says a ton about the future of Drupal. I think it really does, because in a time where people probably had their own internal budget issues and their own concerns about the future. At least uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. There were hundreds of organizations and thousands of individuals who contributed. And not only that, they hit our like half million dollar goal in half the time. We were going to do a 60 day campaign. We were done in 30. So, I mean, it really says how much people believe that supporting the association and the infrastructure that allows the community to build Drupal is important, not just for abstract philosophical reasons, but it, it, it's important to their business, to their livelihoods. Um, and it's a, it's a public good. Yeah. You know, you bring up, uh, you know, revenue and, and things like that. Uh, do you think that there could ever be a paid version of Drupal? We, I know that a lot of open source has in one way or another gone in that direction now. And in your case, there's a nonprofit, you know, that, that's here and other things that, uh, play a deeper role than in some open source uh, situations. Uh, sure. You know, it's a juxtaposition. You know, people uh, people like to think that open source automatically means something in particular, but depending on, on you know, whose wings you're under, uh, yeah. it's not always the same. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the open source movement and the free software movement are not necessarily the same thing. A lot of the free software radicals who sort of genuinely believe that code should be transparent and free and not even, you know, that there shouldn't be a such thing as intellectual property for code, have a whole different perspective than people who believe in open source just as a uh, development philosophy in terms of it producing better results and better code because it can be audited by external parties because you can bring in external contributors because it's just a better way of doing the work. So there's that juxtaposition in the market between uh, the way people think about open source versus free software. And uh, in Drupal's case, no, I don't think Drupal itself will ever have the paid or premium version. It's GPL uh, v2. um, It can be used in GPL v3 context as well. Um, It has so many contributors, we could never relicense. What does exist as sort of a paid kind of thing that is some of the ways that our users, our business ecosystem, Uh, kind of monetizes and makes Drupal work for them is there are hosted platforms for Drupal, of course, that are, that have extra things layered on top. They have extra personalization features or they have development environment features or they have whatever the case. Marketing features. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So those, those kinds of things can exist in a, in a paid landscape to help keep that ecosystem thriving and to, to create an economy around Drupal, which is ultimately important. All these people who contributed want to, in a, in the best case scenario, they're all making that back. That's that virtuous cycle is feeding a, an ecosystem that supports everyone. Yeah, I mean, look, the more, I mean, it, basic math. You know, the the more users on Drupal that a, a web host has, the more that they can contribute back to that community through sponsorships and other things and thought leadership. And uh, you know, and the same goes for digital agencies and for you know technology providers, whether it's the company that is you know, I don't know, adding live chat into a lot of these sites, you name it, yeah. right? You know, there, there's no sure doing, uh, you know, a, any number of things that integrate, um, you know, uh, you know, different marketing tech stacks and other things. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, Tim, you've been really generous with your time today. <laughs> um, sure. uh, before we start to wrap up, just wondering, um, you know, there are a lot of users on other open source CMS uh, environments, you know, other Linux based yeah. platforms like WordPress and Magento and, and so on. Um, do you have any other thoughts on things that those users should know specifically about Drupal, the Drupal community, the Drupal ecosystem, the Drupal association? I'm going to think of any other SEO keywords that should be layered <laughs> on that question. Yeah. Uh, but, um, no, I mean, do, do you think that uh, I, I think we've really covered a lot of what makes Drupal unique? Yeah, it, no, it's a great question, though. And first of all, I'll say that um, all the reasons that it is valuable for people to participate in an open source project are reasons that it's valuable for open source projects to collaborate with each other. Right. So um, so we talk to people over at the WordPress Foundation um, and at Automatic. We talk to people at Type 3 at Joomla. We've 
Um, in fact, with, with several of those folks, we're collaborating on, on a security architecture for updates delivery based on the tough framework. So, you know, there's, there's, there's friendly collaboration across these spaces. And at the same time, we can recognize that our, our solutions are used in different ways, right? So if you're familiar with these other kinds of platforms, um, in terms of like the infrastructure and management of the tool, installation processes, all those things, they're relatively similar. There's a lot of best practices that you can explore on Drupal.org and in published books around these things if you have an interest in Drupal. Um, I'd also suggest just deep diving on some of the case study information that's out there, um, particularly on Drupal.org, because that might help you understand, um, again, Drupal just straight out of the box. Is, is, is more of a blank canvas than some of these other things are. It's, it's, it's ready to be customized to a purpose. And so looking at how others have done that is a really good way to get that orientation rather than just, just looking at that out-of-the-box installation. So I'd, I'd really do your reading on those things. Awesome. Well, Tim, I can't thank you enough. Um, this has been a phenomenal episode, uh, you know, chock full of information that um, I'm really glad that we're able to bring out there to our audience. Um, I hope we have you back on soon. Uh, to our uh, to our listeners, as always, you know, thanks for tuning in, and we have a lot more great content uh, in the works. So, uh, be sure to stay subscribed, and uh, we'll be in touch with with more news you need soon. All right, thanks, Robert, and thanks to you and uh, the JetRails organization for having me. It was great to be here. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it. And more importantly, we appreciate you.